Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Manalytics versus Analytics, a podcast that brings you two different perspectives from two former professional sports gamblers and a former professional Division One athlete. I'm joined by my partner, Matt. Hey, everybody. Excited to join you, Dan. Uh, looking forward to bringing some insights to our viewers. And former Division One athlete, J-Rob. What's up, y'all? I'm happy to be here. Glad to debunk some, debunk some of these analytics with you. And it's going to be a good time. And that's the point of this podcast. We're going to give you two different perspectives. We're going to talk through each situation through the lens of analytics and through the lens of conventional wisdom and you know a little bit of subjectivity. Um, so to give you guys kind of a lay of the land of what we're going to be going over today, we're going to talk a lot about Ben Simmons, what his impact is going to be on the futures market, how you can use that to fix up your bets, place your bets, what analytics that you should be looking at. And just from a general subjectivity and fit perspective, how he fits on some other teams, run through some trade outcomes. We're going to go through Kyrie Irving and his vaccination status. We're going to give you guys a little bit more education on futures in general, why they move, when they should be used and when they should be avoided. We're going to go through Russell Westbrook, his impact on the Lakers and spacing. And finally, we're going to go through each NFL game that had some significant play that drove an outcome such as a fourth down, such as a two-point conversion. And we're going to look through it and see if the coach made the right decision, the wrong decision, and how that impacted the rest of the game. So let's start with Ben Simmons. First up, just a quick overlay of what's going on. Most of the people that are listening probably already know what has happened, but we're recording this on Tuesday. The latest news is Ben Simmons has reported to training camp though he was promptly kicked out, suspended for the first game. Um, and more or less, you know, we, we know the history. Uh, Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid in the playoffs kind of made some, some sly remarks about whether he could be someone on a championship winning team. He took it the wrong way and uh, has since demanded a trade. And what we know about Ben Simmons is you know, pretty clear. He's elite at about 80% of basketball. And he's one of the worst players in the league at about 20% of basketball. And, you know, depending on what side you're on, you might have a different opinion of him. But before I ask you guys about what your opinions are on the situation uh, and what trade scenarios make sense to, to the group here, I want to give a lay of the land to the, to the viewers and the listeners about who's calling the shots for the 76ers, which is Daryl Morey. So Daryl Morey is one of the pioneers of basketball analytics Obviously, the first sport to really take on analytics was baseball. But Daryl Morey is he's a computer science major from Northwestern. He's got an MBA from MIT. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at MIT. So, you know, he, really his, his perspective on the game is shoot as many threes as possible, especially corner threes, and shoot as many layups as possible while avoiding jump shots at all costs. Why? Because an expected value of, of each shot a corner three and a three-pointer and a layup is much more valuable over time than a, a mid-range jumper is. Um, so this is the, when we're viewing what, what should happen with Ben Simmons, you, you can't just look at it from the perspective of, you know, subjectively, what player might be good, what player might be a fit. Daryl Moore is going to be looking at these analytics. And that's why a lot of the trade scenarios that get floated out there uh, to me and, and from my perspective don't make much sense because we have to think of it above, you know, what, it, what is Daryl Morey going to do? So the first one, uh, I want to shoot to you, J-Rob, and then I'll give my opinion and Matt's opinion. Uh, a one-for-one -one swap, 
Ben Simmons for Pascal Siakam. Um, J-Rob, you know, first and foremost, what's your opinions on, on that from a basketball perspective? And I guess what, what, what's an overlay from, from your side on, on the Ben Simmons situation? Um, well, first, as an overall, I'm actually really surprised you said Pascal Siakam for Ben Simmons. I actually thought you were going to say Kyrie Irving for Ben Simmons because I think the swap is perfect for... We'll, we'll get through the, a few more. Yeah, I thought the Kyrie and Ben Simmons would be swapped just based off um, uh, fit for team. But overall with this situation, I mean, this situation was doomed from the start. I mean, as a football player being on a team, I think after Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid going at press conference and pretty much throw him under the bus, it, it was over with. And I blame both parties. I'm not absolving anybody from this because as much as I understand why Ben Simmons is so out on the Sixers right now, there has to be some sense of accountability for him as well. You know, you've been in the NBA for three three years now, four years. You've been all team. You've made all-star teams. But the knock on you, and, and Dan, you said it, you're good at about 80% of the game. It's about 20% of the game that, depending on who, who's looking at it, you know, there's that part of the game that you're terrible at. And, and in my honest opinion, I don't even know if he's terrible at it because he has never really attempted to add it to his game. So we don't even really know, like, is, are you a bad shooter or because it's you you won't do it. You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately that is his fault. He needs to look in the mirror and, and acknowledge that. But in the same time, let's just say for the example, you know, the three of us, we were on a team and we lose because I make a decision or the lack thereof play that I make to contribute. And then you go in a post conference and say, well, I think, I don't know if J-Rob is the piece that we need to win, or I don't think that, I think when J-Rob fumbled, that's when we lost, why we lost the game. You know, that's going to be hard to deal with because we're, we're teammates, you know, and we are a representation of this organization. So you throw me under the bus is like, you know, this is a divorce waiting to happen. Like it, this was over with once, once that press conference came out, it was over. Like those mm-hmm. comments, you know, and then now, if you look at it now, I mean, Joel Embiid said on, on in a press conference today that I don't care about this man no more. Like, I don't care about this situation no more. This is Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, October 19th, or whatever today is, October 19th. That was said today. So I just think it's over with. And I will have to admit, depending on what the Sixers get back in return, there's their over-under on wins this year. I mean, let's be transparent. With Last year, with Ben Simmons only being able to play 80% of his game or being good at 80% of basketball, they were the number one seed in the East. So, so that's a good segue. Um, before, before I kick it to you, Matt. So Matt, Matt built out a model for us, um, looking at it from, from a pretty analytic perspective of, of what each of these trade scenarios will do uh, to the Sixers' projected win totals. So I brought up Pascal Siakam. Why, you know, with some ancillary pieces, you, you, you can make a case that maybe they would do that trade. Pascal Siakam's kind of a big name, but the problem with that trade is you're, you're, you have a problem with spacing with Ben Simmons. That's what everyone talks about. And you're right. adding someone that's not good at spacing. To me, it never made sense. I, I've seen it floated a couple of times. That's one that I think we can more or less throw it out, but you know, why not? Matt, if you, if you want to plug that in, go through what your model does um, 
and kind of give people a lay of the land of, of what you've been working on in terms of this situation? Yeah, I actually just threw it in as, as J-Rob was, was speaking. Um, so, so bottom line is, I mean, the, the way you need to approach this is, is for us, the best way that we think about it as sports bettors is wins above replacement. Um, so first and foremost, Ben Simmons last year had a wins above replacement of, um, what was it, 6.2, um, which is on the upper echelon of, of players in the NBA. Essentially what that means is if you were to take him out and put in an average NBA player, you could expect them to lose 6.2 more games than they would with Ben Simmons in the game. Uh, so it's pretty substantial, uh, especially when you're looking at, you know, 81 games in a season, uh, 6.2 can, can, can be a big difference. You throw in uh, Pascal Siakam, he has uh, a, a wins above replacement of around 3.2. So substantially less. Um, it would be analytically a poor trade for them to make. Um, however, you know, do you think it's likely that, that, that Pascal Siakam gets thrown in there? And, and listening to you talk, J-Rob, I mean, you sound pretty bare on the whole situation from, you know, an emotional standpoint. Um, you think it's sooner than later that he, he that he's out of there and Dan you make it sound like um the Sixers might not even let him trade so so I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out here you know the timing the timing matters for you know for, for trying to figure out how many games these Sixers might win um win this season it, yeah, J-Rob. so I mean honestly I just think it's I think the the, the this thing has been so it's been thing boiling over since last year's play uh playoffs that we're at the point where the Ben Simmons value, like the most you're going to be able to get for him, all these teams and all these GMs already know that Ben Simmons is not coming back, does not want to be in Philadelphia. Yeah. So that's really advantageous for these other GMs because they can decide, you know, they have more leverage to decide what we're going to give up. Like he doesn't want to be there anymore. So it's not like, unfortunately, unless the Sixers are able to land Kyrie Irvin or Damian Lillard, you're not going to get the same value back for Ben Simmons. And unfortunately, 80% of Ben Simmons is better than a lot of 100% of the NBA. That's just us being realistic about it. So you trying to find that value back where the contracts align and the fit aligns, there's really only two teams you can do business with in the NBA. I think that's the Portland Trailblazers or the Brooklyn Nets. And obviously still you grab, you take the Brooklyn Nets, Kyrie still can't play in New York or Golden State. So there's still games he's going to miss. And God forbid you go into a playoff series with Kyrie Irving as a sixer and you playing the Brooklyn Nets or you're playing the, the New York Knicks because he can't play. So it's, it's hard. It's hard to look at because yes, it is an emotional thing and it does affect wins, but realistically, I don't think the Sixers should wait this thing out because what if they, at the end of the day, drama, drama affects a team, no matter what the Nets just lost by 24 points today. And they've been in a slew of just drama with this Kyrie thing. And as much as they want to put it past them, that's going to be the story for every game until he's either moved or he decides he's just not going to play for the entire year. And mm -hmm. so the Sixers are going to deal with the same thing. People are going to talk about this Ben Simmons thing forever. It's going to be a distraction because if at the end of the day, Ben Simmons is going to have to go back to practice. He's going to go back to practice 
He's going to have his cell phone in his pocket. He's going to wear cutoff hoodies and sweatpants. He's not even going to wear his jersey, his practice jersey. And that's what it's going to be. So no matter what, if that's the energy that's walking into your locker room every day, that's going to affect your overall. Because even even this, let's say you're having a frustrating game and Ben Simmons is not playing because you're obviously probably not going to play him much. The chemistry is back because you got this energy on the bench that Joel Embiid is not going to deal with. None of the other guys are going to want to deal with. So I think in this for the sake of this the 76ers, because I also think this thing is emotional for them as well. They may not admit it and they try to say they're past it to the media, but if this wasn't emotional for them, they would have moved on from this Ben Simmons thing already. I think this would have been over with much faster. But so, I think so I don't know. I'm not really too sure where this goes, but I definitely think 76ers need to let him go as soon as possible. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the exact opposite side. All right, um, let's hear it. <laughs> so, so from my perspective, Ben Simmons is, is locked in for four years. If he really wants to play hardball, I, I guess he could. But if, I, if I'm Daryl Morey, I, I realize one very, very specific thing, which is Joel Embiid, I believe, is 27 years old. He's uh, what? Uh, let's just call it like 7'2", seven, 7'3", seven, over 300 pounds. People of that size, that talented – that are banging down low tend to not last very long. So, I mean, you look at like Shaq's career, right? Once he was 30 years old, that was probably the end of prime Shaq. So if you line up those careers, it makes a lot of sense. They do some of the same things, take a lot of the same contact. We've already seen Joel Embiid miss miss a bunch of time, especially in the playoffs. He wears down as the season goes on. If I'm Daryl Morey, I'm thinking to myself, I need to maximize what I have left of Joel Embiid. And it's a weird way to put it because you're seeing guys like KD, LeBron go late into their careers. I don't think that's going to be the case for Joel Embiid. So if I'm Daryl Morey, what I'm thinking to myself is I can't trade Ben Simmons, who, like I said, 80% of basketball, he's very elite. 20% of basketball, I understand he's not. I'm not going to trade Ben Simmons for pieces that aren't going to inch me closer to a title. So what does that mean now? It means to me, this is the lowest that Ben Simmons trade value is. But as the 76ers, I think what they won 52 games last year in a short, short season, something like that. How good are the Sixers without Ben Simmons? My answer is they're probably the three or the four seed, maybe the five seed, something, something along those lines. They're a playoff team. Let's just put it that way. So if you, if you take the bet where you wait, do you lose more games than, than you would have had, had you traded him for, you know, let, let, let's quick go down my list and then we can plug it in. But Darius Garland and, you know, maybe pieces or Colin Sexton in pieces, undersized guards, not that good at defense. Do they help with spacing? Maybe a little bit, not something Daryl Moore is going to do. D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, and a pick or two. Doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Matt will go through Raptor probably in a bit. D'Angelo Russell, so Raptors uh, advanced analytics. Russell last year was 188th in Raptor. 188th, that's an analytic that Daryl Moore looks at. He's not going to trade for D'Angelo Russell. DeJounte Murray and Derek White. I actually kind of like that one for the Sixers. I think it, it makes a little bit of sense from the standpoint of, you know, you are getting someone that could space in Derek White, but what most people could, would consider the best player in that trade, DeJounte Murray, is not good at spacing. Um, you're also losing a ton on defense. I'm not sure if Dale Murray would do that. Bradley Beal, yeah, you wish. Yeah, if you could get Bradley Beal, go ahead. You're not going to get Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal, I believe, qualifies for the Supermax after this year. He's going to wait till after the year. He'll sign the Supermax, then maybe he'll, he'll demand a trade out. I, I, I don't see it likely that he would leave before he could sign a larger contract. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Damian Lillard, you would have to have Ben Simmons and pieces for Damian Lillard. To me, probably not going to happen. Um, and Damian Lillard is, you know, he's Portland's golden child for so many years. If he did want to leave, he's going to be able to pick his destination. I think everyone knows he's going to go to the Knicks if he decides to leave. I don't think it makes sense that he goes there. Brogdon, Karis Levert doesn't work anymore. Malcolm Brogdon just signed an extension. He can't be traded this year. Throw that one out. Kyrie, like you said, no one's, no one's trading for Kyrie right now unless it's super buy low because you don't even know if you could play this year. So before I give you guys who I think, what, what I think is, makes the most sense of a trade, I want to give a quick, just a quick history lesson uh, for listeners out there. Just, and I don't have this totally memorized, but more or less, let's go the history of the NBA. In the 60s, um, you have Russell and you have Wilt Chamberlain. Russell wins, obviously, 11 titles. Wilt, you sprinkle in a few. You go into the 70s. Before Kareem totally takes over, even though he wins a title, you have, you know, Havlicek won a title. Bill Walton won a title. People forget how good he was before he got hurt. You start to, you know, move on in time. There's a few. Magic and Larry Bird enter the league. They trade back and forth. Who wins a title? Roll the 90s, the bad boy Pistons come in. They win two titles. And then everyone knows Michael Jordan wins three titles. Michael Jordan decides, I want to play baseball. Maybe he got kicked out for gambling. That's a different podcast. Who knows? But Hakeem wins two titles. Michael comes back. He wins three titles. At the end of that, welcome. You have Tim Duncan and David Robinson win a title. Shaq and Kobe win three titles. Tim Duncan wins another title. D. Wade sprinkled in there winning his title. Then you have this huge outlier of Chauncey Billups winning a title, but he also had, I don't know, Rip Hamilton, all-star, Rasheed Wallace, all-star, Ben Wallace, all-star. They win a title. Then what the Spurs win a couple more titles. Kobe wins a couple of titles with Powell. Enter LeBron James wins, obviously, his title. Steph Curry wins his titles. KD wins his titles. Kawhi wins the one. Giannis wins the one. I know that was a long little soliloquy on the, on the history of the NBA, but the point is this. You cannot win an NBA title outside of very, very rare cases like Chauncey Billups without a top 50 basketball player of all time. People want to bring up Dirk Nowitzki. He's a top 25 basketball player of all time. I'd have to go through the list, but it's probably higher than that. My point is this, Joel Embiid probably talent-wise could be a top 50 basketball player of all time. You can win an NBA championship through Joel Embiid. I think Daryl Morey knows that. And I think to maximize the years you have remaining of Joel Embiid, you're going to prioritize a player that can win in the next few years. I honestly do not disagree with that take at all. You're, you're hundred percent right in the NBA, in the NBA, you, you need players. I don't think any title is won, Like you said, outside of like the Chauncey Billups title, Dirk Nowitzki's, there's not too many titles. I mean, that if you don't have top 50 players of all time on your team, can you get there? But this is my thing, Dan, is he doesn't want to be there. He don't want to play for him. At the end of the day, and this is why I understand the numbers, and I understand Daryl Moore with the analytics, but from the psyche of a player, at this point, Ben Simmons, he makes money. And right now, even since he's been with the Sixers, he ain't been, he hasn't gotten paid. He's still getting fined. He's going to get fined for this suspension from walking out of practice. So how long does he hold out? That, that's the point. You have I him think for four he's ready years. To do it for, I honestly think Ben Sim is ready to hold out the whole year. I I'll swear. Take, to, I would take that bet. I, I would take that bet that thing, he doesn't. But, but let me ask you this. But this is my thing, too. What about mm-hmm. James? What about the James Harden? James Harden, he can play. Let's say Ben Simmons does play. 
but he's out of shape, disengaged. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Two different points based off one, one thing I would say. There is absolutely no question whatsoever about how good James Harden is at basketball. And there is a question about how good Ben Simmons is at basketball. I agree. James Harden cannot have like a less valuable trade value. I said that weird, but the point is he would have to do something so ridiculous for people to think that maybe he's not as good of a player outside of just aging. I understand that was like a weird situation, but we knew he came out and he had a few of those good games and then he started. <laughs> I don't think Ben Simmons can do that, but. Okay, so I, I'm going to float you guys the trade scenario to me. That makes the most sense. Um, yeah, you guys could pick it apart. But my thing is this, and I, it's kind of like um, I'm also trying to do this through the lens of I'm trying to think as much like Daryl Morey as I can. I think Daryl Morey waits. I think he waits until closer to the trade deadline. I think the reason he would do that is right now we're in a funny part of the NBA. Before you play a game, everything's perfect. It's like, man, those off-season moves we made, they were good. They were good off-season moves. I feel great about this. Do you know when they find out that they're not good? 20 games in, 30 games in, you start to realize, oh, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie and Bradley Beal, maybe that's not a championship team. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, and I'll, I'll just hop right into it. Maybe Paul George and the Clippers aren't doing so well. Maybe Kawhi Leonard is not recovering as quick as people may want. Maybe Steve Ballmer is realizing that the championship window of the Clippers might be closing a little bit. You're not about to say what I think you're about to say. So, so here's the trade that I think makes the most sense. I don't hear it floated often. Um, so let me, let me just say the trade. It's, it's Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, and two first-round picks for Paul George. Um, and, and the reason I say that from both parties and obviously some things need to happen, which is, you know, the Clippers need to probably underperform a little bit and Kawhi Leonard needs to possibly do what Kawhi Leonard does and not give too much clarity on his injury. But look, the Clippers are in a weird position. They traded five first round picks to get Paul George. They haven't won a title. They're getting older. I would say their roster is getting, you know, in my opinion, a little bit worse as the years go on, they're getting obviously older, also the, the pieces around them. I could see a scenario when we're getting closer to the trade deadline that you're not blowing it up. You're switching it up. You realize you, you acknowledge the fact that it doesn't seem like this team can win a title. And I, I'll just run quick through the numbers um, on some work that I did around this trade uh, really quick. I, I, I use what's called the LeBron metric. Um, shout out to B-Ball Index. They do an incredible job of quantifying players. So what the LeBron uh, metric will do is it'll tell you how much a player is worth over the average player per 100 possessions, and that's points. So if someone has a LeBron of eight, they're eight points above the average player per 100 uh, possessions. So I ran through some scenarios of different lineups um, and how they grade on the LeBron percentile basis. So the numbers shown, they reflect the percentage of players and lineups, the selected player lineup grades out better than, uh, hopefully that makes sense. But if you have any questions on that, you know, feel free to ask us, but, um, so you add in Paul George to the Sixers. And I, I think everyone is, is pretty clear of what would happen. Your spacing goes through the roof. So I know you lose Seth Curry, but you still have Danny green. Joel Embiid for a center is incredibly, incredibly good at spacing. You have Tobias Harris. Who's also very good at spacing. You add in someone like Tyrese Maxey to fill out the starting lineup. Also fairly good at space. But good at defense. 
So like good at defense um, and decent at offense. You end up with a LeBron rating that goes from about in the 99th percentile, which was the Sixers last year, to close to the best lineup in the league on a LeBron basis. I think everyone knows that the Sixers would do that trade. But from the Clippers perspective, here's what I think is interesting. You get some flexibility in picks. Like I said, they don't, they don't have control over their first round pick until 2027 because of the trade they made to get Paul George. Your lineup looks something along the lines of uh, Reggie Jackson, Kawhi Leonard, Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, and Zubak. And look, you actually get better at defense. You add in Ben Simmons, one of the best defenders in the league. You get someone that's less redundant. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George kind of do the same things. You get someone that can play underneath, like he can't play with Joel Embiid because you know Zubox doesn't really have to be on the court for the closing lineup. You get someone that can distribute, and you get someone that's young, right? Ben Simmons is 25 years old. So from the perspective of that team, I, I think it makes a lot of Paul George is obviously significantly on Simmons, and I think it lines up with the window of Joel Embiid. That's All right. I, 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 you know, I'd like to, I'd like to break that down real quick from a, a sports betting perspective. If you think that won't happen until closer to the trade deadline, it wouldn't. Absolutely. In. Okay. So, so this is, this is a positive value trade for the Sixers without a doubt. Um, and, and I, and I get to that number by looking at again, wins above replacement and you look at the Raptor as well. So Raptors very similar to LeBron has a couple different intri- intricacies, but Essentially, what it tries to uh, tries to narrow down is, you know, how effective this person is at, you know, scoring X number of points per 100 possessions. So on both a, a, a WAR rating, so wins above replacement and a Raptor rating, a Ben Simmons, Seth Curry trade for uh, for Paul George is is a positive increase for the Sixers. How positive? It depends on when that trade happens. So if it happened now, obviously more positive for for the Sixers. If it happens, so the trade deadline, I just looked it up, is, is February 7th. So say it happens February 7th, um, given the wins above replacement, we could expect the Sixers to win just over one more game. It's not extremely beneficial, but it's certainly beneficial. So from a gambling perspective, I try to narrow down, hey, where can I, where can I uh, get a good line on this? And if you look at if you look at what the market is, is estimating right now for uh, regular season wins for the Sixers, it's 50 and a half. So, you know, my, my, my hot take would be 51 and a half, probably assuming that scenario uh, for the Sixers. So probably be, probably be a good bet on the over there. However, I'd love to hear J Rob's perspective on this because I, I, I'd like, you know, if, if, you know, Ben Simmons holds out and is an asshole for, the entire season, uh, a, a war, a, a war rating of 6.2 goes to zero, goes to negative. The guy's useless at that point. Um, and we could see a complete tanking of, of the Sixers this year if that continues. So I will say that was, I was not ready for, for that trade. Um, that was, it makes sense. I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't make sense. Unfortunately, I don't think Balmer and company are doing that. Because the reason, and the reason why I don't think they're doing that is because of the asset that is Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard is the reason why Paul George is on that team. And unfortunately, I look at the numbers, the way the numbers are breaking it down, that is, that is also with the idea that everything goes right. Everything goes according to plan. This is how things pan out for the year. My only concern is 
when Ben Simmons, I don't, I already don't think that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are like elite leaders in the, in the NBA. They are great basketball players. I think both of them, if you look at like the top 30 players, Kawhi is somewhere in that top 10, top seven, and Paul George is somewhere in that top 20 range where they in the league currently. However, I don't think you, you take out Paul George and you switch him with Ben Simmons. I don't know if him and Kawhi work because this is also accounting on the personalities. And yes, Paul George brings spacing to the Sixers. And he does a lot of things fit-wise that they need. But I also look at Paul George's career in the playoffs. I think this year, the Clippers, this was the first year that Paul George kind of absolved a lot of the myths about him performing in the playoffs. But if we really look at this thing transparently, Ben Simmons with Joel Embiid takes you to the Eastern Conference Finals and is a Kawhi Leonard three bounces, prayer to God shot away from a finals. Paul George is at his best and alone has gotten you down down 3-1 to the Nuggets in the bubble. The bubble buster of all bubble buster upsets happens. So they get bounced out with Paul George. And I know a lot of it was, you know, his mental health. And I respect that and I understand. But, you know, you got to also call a spade a spade. That's what happened. Then you, you fast forward a year later. And I get it. Kawhi Leonard got hurt. I, I understand but a resume is a resume. Like, this is still the result. Like, you didn't take your team to the finals. You guys lost in six games. So, I just don't know if you make the trade. Does, are the seven, is, is Paul George and Joel Embiid enough to get past Giannis and that team in Milwaukee? Is, is that enough to get past the, uh, the Brooklyn Nets? I don't even know if that's enough to get past Jason Tatum and the Celtics. And so I just feel like these swaps, you know, and the Bulls are good. The, the Miami Heat are going to be good again. I just don't know if, I, if I'm looking to make this trade from as an organization, the 76ers, I don't think you get anything back for Ben Simmons that'll make you feel like we're going to win a championship with this squad. So I think you have to be ready for whatever outcome you get with Ben Simmons and Daryl Morey and the 76ers just have to be ready to adjust to what they get. And honestly, I agree. I think if this thing doesn't work out, they might have to consider blowing this up. I would test the market on Ben on Joel Embiid because unfortunately I would look at this situation and say, the process is finally over. The process is over. And with the process being over, we have this asset in Joel Embiid. Do I think that I could put a team together to get this man a finals, but by the time he's 31? Because I think you said it best, Dan. He's 27. We know the history on big men in the NBA. And I know, and we all know, that Joel Embiid has not finished, has not played 70 games in the NBA season in his career yet. So there's going to be a point where he's only going to be playing 40 to 50 games a season because he's, he's damn near already doing it now. So I think it's just hard to assume that that trade is going to make the 76ers a winning team. I just think at this point, you try to recoup some picks, get as much value as you can. You're not going to get the market price on Ben Simmons and you live to see another day and you see what happens for the season. I think that's a great, I think the scenario and the picks make sense logistically, 
they logistically they make a lot of sense. And I and that's actually I didn't even think about a Paul George. However, I just don't I can't see it happening. I don't think Kawhi Leonard is going to be willing to let Paul George go. And you also just mortgaged your whole life for this Paul George thing. You got to want it to work. You know, the human, the human well, nature of it a little bit, too, you know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I feel like they've already tried to make it work, and I think we know what their ceiling is, just personally. As and the I, Clippers or uh, the Sixers? The Clippers. Okay, yeah. And I guess from my perspective, just to take it a little more holistic, in today's NBA, and again, I'm always framing this, trying to think about how, how if I was Daryl Morey, how I would do this. He knows this much better than I do. The way you win basketball games now, right, is you either have a player – that has has some real gravity. Shout out to B-Ball Index again. You can look at their their um, their rankings for role gravity. But essentially, what it's saying is, if I drive to the basket, how much do I suck players in, and how much do I create shots for people in corner threes? The analytically the best shot in in uh, in basketball. We know Ben Simmons could do that from the perspective of he is not the greatest of distributors, but he is exceptionally good at finishing around the rim as a as a point guard, big man, six eleven point guard. He can pass. He's, you know, he has that higher level basketball IQ. It's not, you know, on the, on the LeBron level as, as people like to say, but it, it, it is well above average. And I think he, he realizes that if, if you're going to trade Ben Simmons, what you have to get in return to be able to maximize Joel Embiid's time is somebody that creates whatever the problem he's trying to fix with Ben Simmons was with spacing. And I don't see a scenario that he sells at the absolute lowest for for Ben Simmons just personally and and from the Clippers perspective like I said I I think it has run its course in a sense and I think that you may find a time closer to the trade deadline that they're just treading above water and then if the narrative changes the narrative changes and if it doesn't seem like Kawhi Leonard's coming back or there's a good chance that he, he won't be back until like you know a week before the playoffs I could see a scenario where they want some flexibility, where they add some draft picks, they add a younger player. And it's not somebody that wouldn't work. Like I said, he does create that role of gravity. They would be able to surround him with shooters. Ray Jackson, Seth Curry is obviously a great shooter. Kawhi Leonard could shoot. I think they can make it work. And I, I know even from an analytics perspective, they, they drop down a little bit in terms of their lineup, but I think it adds a, an extra piece to their puzzle. Not redundant. Like I said, between uh, Paul George and Kawhi. And I think, I think it can make sense for both parties. So we'll see how the narrative changes, but um, that's the one I'm floating out there into the abyss. I hope it ages well. It may not, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> no, I definitely will say, I definitely will say, I, I, I don't think you should take absolutely, you should not take a bag of chips and some bubble gum for Ben Simmons. You know what I'm saying? I definitely agree with that, but I, you, you might have to take the best possible offer. You know, like you might, just, mm-hmm. it might get to that point where it's just whatever the best offer is. And, and I think he'll wait for it. But yeah. we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find uh, out. We'll so find Matt, out. do you do you have uh, a, a, any input you want to put analytically to to the debate? I mean, it, it obviously does depend significantly on when this trade happens. Um, it, I mean, if we go the uh, the route that um, Daryl Morey is an analytical guy, he doesn't he he won't be giving up Ben Simmons for anyone. Um, you know, from in a less pedigree, I, I think that. From a from a, a bullish win standpoint, it makes sense to be a bit optimistic on the Sixers, assuming that um, assuming that Ben Simmons uh, doesn't doesn't continue to do what he did today. I guess is is the best scenario. He doesn't show up in sweatpants and he actually plays like 
you know, maybe not quite like he did last year, but a little bit closer to it than, than he showed today. I, I'm a little bit more optimistic on it from, from a, a way to, you know, benefit from this. I'm just looking at, I'm, I'm, so I'll start with the Atlantic division. Um, on Bet Rivers, 76ers are plus 300 to, uh, to, to win the Atlantic division. Nets are minus 250, so obviously a heavy favorite there. Um, but still, I mean, if, 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 if you're optimistic and, and you think that what, what 300 equates to a 23% probability that the Sixers win the Atlantic division, might be higher than that, um, if, especially if they can get a decent trade outcome out of this, um, like, like a, you know, maybe a, a, a Damian Lillard. I, I know that you threw out there earlier, J-Rob, um, or Paul George uh, could, could be beneficial in that scenario. Um, another, another bet, obviously, is Eastern Conference. Um, Sixers right now are plus 800 on that. Uh, Nets are 105, Bucks are 350. Um, and Sixers and third at 800. So that's, that's another take. And, and, the, and the last of which, which is the most concrete, is how many wins do you think that the Sixers are going to win? Um, is it, how many wins do you think the Sixers are going to have in this regular season? So Mark is at 50 and a half. Um, you, you, can, you can look at these projections like LeBron, Raptor, uh, wins above replacement, and you can you know, concrete narrow down, hey, if this trade happens, this player is X amount better than this player. Uh, you, know, you can even add... Spacing is factored into the into the LeBron and Raptor ratings, so um, it, it, those are those are good numbers to look at. Um, and if you see that a team has so after the trade, the Sixers have two hundred more expected points for the season based on those players, um, which is something that could happen. That could equate to you know five more wins, you know, pretty easily, uh, especially when you look at well, well the Sixers' average win. Average spread last year, um, ending spread was was six points, so it's pretty substantial. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm at there. And I would say, you know, before we move on, we'll see what happens. A lot of what matters in this is when the trade happens, and and that's why this debate, aside from what what the trade would be, is when it will happen. Because if you're betting a futures, you're you're also you're taking a stance on on when the trade will happen, and as a, a more holistic betting tip, I guess, in a sense is when you're betting, you're not always trying to find the correct number, as weird as it sounds. You're trying to find what's wrong with the market's number. Absolutely. So that's so what I'm trying to say is, you know, what is the market banking in right now? Because yep. today was a weird day. Ben Simmons showed up, which people didn't think he would do, but then he got kicked out and suspended. So what, what is the consensus and, and what we were trying to do by going through all these trade scenarios and, and, and bringing some analytics and some subjectivity to it is what are some things that you can think about that the market might not be baking in? Because uh, that's the most important part about really any bet, but this one specifically, because there's so many variables that you can hold for that are, you could take a stance on. And if you are strong, if you feel strongly about one of them being wrong, you are in position where you know, it, the bet becomes a lot more obvious to you. And you really don't have to build a model like Matt to get to an exact number. You just have to say to yourself, what do I think the world's thinking and which part of it is wrong and pick that side. And that's, that's a way that, you know, to frame gambling and also it works for kind of stocks, bonds, things of that nature is you're trying to find what the market is missing. It, there's some parallels there. 
Yeah. So, so to summarize your guys' points, I mean, I think that you actually um, are kind of probably in the middle. Um, you guys are on either sides and the market might actually be in the middle, whereas Dan, you're a bit more optimistic that um, that they'll be able to get a good trade for him and wait close to the trade deadline. And, and, uh, and Ben Simmons will be able to perform this year while J Rob, you're more on the pessimistic side that, you know, Ben Simmons actual performance might not be that, uh, <laughs> uh, might not be that good. Um, even up to the point he's traded and, and that point might be very soon and they might be willing to give up for someone that's, you know, not very good. Uh, so, so yeah. And I'm thinking the market's probably, I actually do know that the market is probably in the middle because I, I watched this news unfold and, and the regular season win count is still at 50 and a half. It hasn't moved. So that tells me that um, the market's kind of not baking, not, not baking it in maybe. Um, so viewers can do what they want with that information here, here, Dan and, and J Rob's side of things and, and make their own decision based on it. But you know, the three ways you can kind of capitalize on it are regular season wins, Atlantic division um, and, and Eastern conference. And yeah, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of ripple effects, you know, how will this affect kind of Joel and bead season? Will you have more opportunities, less opportunities across the board? Yeah. But we've spent a lot of time on this topic. So to move on, and, and I think we'll, we'll have to do it pretty quickly because there's, there's some parallels with these two topics, but we wanted to touch on it to explain why it's a little bit more difficult. I would say than the Ben Simmons scenario is Kyrie Irving's vaccination status. So the nets are in a tough position. Um, I think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, what's going on with Kyrie Irving. Uh, he, he does not want to get vaccinated. He's not going to get vaccinated. Uh, the signs are pointing to that at least. So he cannot play in New York. It's mandated by actually the counties and the cities, uh, whether you're allowed to do that. Um, so he won't be playing in New York and he won't be playing in California. And I just want to add one other thing to that. There is absolutely no telling whether more states will add that. It, 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 the decisions can come down to literally, I don't want to say the wrong word, maybe it's not county, but like the, the, the borough, whatever it is, can make the decision that, you know, this, this stadium resides in this, technically this city or this town. Yeah, we're, we're not doing that here. And, and they could decide that whenever they want. Obviously, it's not beholden to the NBA. So my point is, that's a tougher one when you're looking at just purely from a betting standpoint. It's very, very, there's so many variables that you would have to account for to make a true decision on, on what the Nets total should be. Um, so really, I'm not going to give an opinion. If you, if you don't have an opinion on gambling of what someone's going to do, you probably shouldn't do it. So uh, I know, J-Rob, you have some thoughts on it. And, and Matt, if you want to add some, some analytics to it or any opinions you have on it. Um, I mean, I think... I think it obviously will affect like futures for the Nets in terms of like over-unders on wins, making the playoffs. Um, I really don't feel like I could really tell like the public what to do with this situation because I mean, realistically, does Kyrie really decide to not play basketball for what could potentially be a year? Because the thing about this Kyrie situation that scares me the most is is somebody going to be willing to trade for him? Because Kyrie did say on that Instagram live video that he doesn't want to stop playing basketball. And, it's the, you know, for a while, there was a rumor speculating that if he left the Nets, he'd retire. And, I mean, obviously, sources say a lot of things, but he also acknowledged that and said in his Instagram live that he would not do it. He would not retire. But the problem is with this whole Kyrie thing is, is somebody going to be willing to take that risk with Kyrie? Because Dan, you just said it. Like, as if other cities 
are going to ask for a vaccination mandate, how can you play? You know, like what if what if Philly, what if Philly has a vaccination? What if Chicago has a vaccination? You know, LA, all these major cities, Miami, like these are all major cities that at some point can have vaccination mandates. And if you trade for him, if you trade for him and he can't play for you, you just gave away, you really just gave away some players to another team because you can't no value out of this because you can't use them. So I know it seems like simple to the idea, like if Kyrie just gets vaccinated, you could just take the nets and everything will be fine if you want to taste that over or under. But I, I do think, and I, and I said this to, I think I said this to Dan a, a little earlier um, before we got on the pod, is just like, Kyrie believes, believes in this. And I, you know, I will say I'm, I am vaccinated. I am fully vaccinated. However, this is America. We are allowed our freedoms. That's why people have come to this country. You know what I'm saying? You have your right to religion, sexuality, uh, whatever. You, you can express and be whoever you want to be in this country. However, we also have to be realistic that even in America, some of these freedoms that we have, they, they come at a cost at times, whether they be somebody's stereotypes or inability to work your profession that you, want, that you, uh, that you have. Your right to your freedoms are there, but they will they come at it at a, at a cost at times, and this is one of those situations. I respect and understand that Kyrie's right to be unvaccinated. However, in terms of a sports betting, from looking at it from not a personal lens, from just a sports betting lens, I mean, it's I wouldn't really touch anything that has to do with the Nets right now, especially like over unders on the year because I just don't know enough. You need more clarity, I feel like, on what this is going to look like because they just lost today by 24 points. So it's like this gets this gets kind of scary. Like, how are they going to play throughout the East? And I do think because they don't – they're not the most stout team defensively, they do rely on their ability to outscore other teams. And when you lose such a big score like that, that does kind of mess up a lot of what they're capable of. So – you know what? It's a hard situation. It's hard to look at. I don't. Really, I don't really know. Um, I, this is this is a, a wild uh, a wild thing going on. And what's crazier is I look at the betting markets, and they don't seem to give a shit. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, uh, Brooklyn Nets to yeah. I'll just I'll just run through the three of them real quick. Um, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nets to win the Eastern Conference. You know, one hundred five forty eight percent probability that they're going to win the Eastern Conference. To win the Atlantic Division, Brooklyn Nets minus two seventy five, so seventy three percent. They they don't care. It, it's crazy. To, here, here's another one. To to win the NBA, thirty percent. Thirty percent is what the market's making. They're they're two thirty, a plus two thirty. It's ridiculous. So, um, and that was so. What time did they play today? I you know, I, I don't know if I had. This is a good while, while Matt's looking this up. This is a good disclaimer to everybody. Matt does not watch sports. No, uh, no, 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 no. Matt, Matt is truly a professional, a former professional sports gambler who <laughs> does, does not care about sports outside of esports. Um, so the perspective that he's giving you is purely, you know, it's not subjectivity of watching games. It, it's running numbers, finding edges. When you find an edge, it's probably pretty small, and you bet them as many times as possible to gain you know, an absolute value of a number. And we and could I'm, go through that process more, but just I'm damn good at it. <laughs> and so when he talks about, you know, like when did the Bucks play, he probably really didn't know that this was opening night. 
I, I heard him say <laughs> Pascal Pascal Siakam earlier. I don't think he said it right. He probably has no idea. Who that is. So just just from that perspective, a disclaimer to the audience while you look that up. Hey, it, it's 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 a it's a testament to the fact you don't have to watch sports to make money on sports betting. For all yeah. for, I doubt, I I think I'm probably in the minority of our viewers that that doesn't that doesn't watch sports. But hey, it's for anyone true. that's out there, for anyone that's out there um, and is interested in making money in sports, you know, I'm your guy. <laughs> but but yeah, the market doesn't seem to care at all. So um, another hot take: if, if if you're very pessimistic on this Kyrie uh, situation. I mean, take the under on these because if he if he can't play half the games, my guess is they lose three more games in the regular season than they would have otherwise. That's that's probably where the numbers line up. So I, I think this is a good segue to what I mentioned when we went through the structure of what we're going over the podcast. We do want to give a little bit more of an in-depth education on the futures market because it is unique from you know, the, the typical markets of spread money lines over unders player props, anything that you're doing on a per game basis, futures operate a little differently. And I'll, I'll take it high level and I'll let Matt run you guys through some test cases of, of some scenarios that you could pretty much bet on right now that, that you'll see what we're talking about. So it, this would take a longer discussion to explain exactly how the gambling markets work, but I'll say in, in summary, the gambling markets shape their lines through sharp sports betting opinions. And, and what that means is there are sharp books out there that are primarily not in America that set lines to some efficiency. They have professional sports bettors, especially in major markets, come in, bet those lines and shape them to be fairly efficient. The futures market is different. The futures market, public money. So you hear that term thrown around a lot and we'll dispel some, some myths throughout the podcast history moving forward, but public money does impact futures bets. And that's really important to know when you're betting futures, which is it is reactionary um, in the sense of if you are betting a, a sum of money and there's, there's a public pressure on a certain bet, it will change the line. Whereas you can have a scenario in a spread, a money line or total where there's a lot of bets coming in on something or even a lot of money coming in on something, but the sports book tends to only move the line based off of the opinions of people that they deem to have an edge. The futures market, I'll say again, is different. So the sports books don't have as many sharp opinions. Sharp bettors do not touch it as much. So what does that mean? That means they take more money from you in the form of, you'll hear it as a vig, as a hold. Essentially what it's saying is it's your cost to trade. And the cost to trade of a, a regular sports bet, just nominally, you have like a minus 110 bet. Everyone has seen that that minus 10 part of the minus 110, that's your cost to trade. And in, and in a futures market, that's going to be a larger number. You're going to be paying more to trade because the sportsbook has less of an opinion on the outcome. So what they want to do is they want to spread their money across and not have too much action, too much liability from their standpoint on any one bet. Um, so Matt actually ran through and got some numbers on that VIG, that hold that I'm talking about. And, and like I said, of a minus 110, that minus 10 is usually your hold in a, in a traditional sports bet. If you go overseas, it's, it's minus 108. But for, for futures, Matt, if you can run through some test cases of, of what the hold is right now, I think that'd be pretty useful for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and again, to reiterate that point, um, the, the reason the big, so what he's saying is the big is higher for futures than it is for, for normal one-to-one bets. And, and again, that's because they have more uncertainty. 
if they don't know what's going to happen, kind of like the the rest of us don't with futures bets, they're so uncertain. They have to bake in a little bit, you know, more profit for themselves. Um, you know, we don't like it as sports bettors, but it makes sense from a sports book perspective to do this. But it, it's actually quite a ridiculous thing that they take. So like Dan was saying, a normal bet that you guys are used to seeing, uh, minus 110, minus 110 on each side. The VIG there is 4.5%. Um, and, and, you know, I can run through the math. It's not very interesting, but that's that's more or less the VIG. However, um, for futures, it can definitely be more. So so I'll, I'll run to the, the same examples I was using earlier. Atlantic Division. Um, if you... So, so the way that you calculate this is say you placed a bet on every team in the Atlantic division, how much money would you lose? So in this situation, you lose 9.3%. So that's the big, um, the, the big is you would 9.3% when a normal bet is four and a half percent. So let's go to, and that's five teams. So let's go to the Eastern conference, 15 teams. The big there is 15.4%. So already more uncertainty with 15 teams that could possibly win the Eastern conference. 15.4% is, uh, it's, it's a ridiculous big that you're paying. Um, and, and then we'll go one step further. So, so win the NBA, um, let me jump to that. The big is 18.4%. So yes, yeah, you see the, the more uncertainty there is, obviously there's more uncertainty on who wins the NBA than who wins the Eastern conference and who wins the Atlantic division and, and the sports books take more big, um, as a result. So, what, what we're saying from, from our perspective is you have to be uh, more confident in yourselves to place these bets than you do on a, on a 50-50 game. If you think that you know, the, the Hawks are going to beat the Sixers, you can be – you still have to be good because a 4.5% big is, is you know, a lot of money, um, but you don't have to be anywhere near as good as, as trying to predict who's going to win the NBA. You have to have a lot more certainty in that. So the riskier bets, obviously the outcome can be higher. Um, but, you know, you know, Dan and I, Dan and I, from our backgrounds, we find that the more inefficient market, uh, there is the, uh, the higher probability of you to make money. So you see it with esports as well. Uh, I like talking about that because esports is highly inefficient. Um, it's more uncertain for the sports books. It's more uncertain for the sports betters, but if you do have an edge, it, it was our most profitable, um, sector. So. And esports did have a higher vig than something like the NFL because exactly. they, they, so. they have more uncertainty, and it makes sense. And yeah. to, to to quick go back to futures, just like the use case that you that you can have some value in it. For the most part, we are saying to avoid it if you want to be a winning gambler. There's different types of gamblers out there. Some some do it for entertainment. You, you may think that you know you definitely know who's going to win the title, barring an injury, at that point or the division, whatever it is, go for it. But for the most part, the, the use case for them can be the ability to hedge out of a bet throughout a season. So like I said, that the numbers are very reactionary. So if you were to say, if you were to take a, um, a bit of a contrarian pick, um, even though it shouldn't be contrarian, but maybe, or you know what, we could use the Sixers as an example. I think, Matt, you said they're like plus 800 to win the Eastern Conference. Yeah. If you were to take a contrarian opinion, which is Ben Simmons actually loves Joel Embiid, as is a hoax, he's coming back in two games, they're going to be fine. <laughs> that number would likely change. So if you bet it right now at, at, at plus 800, theoretically down the line, you could hedge out of that bet to, to lock in some sort of profit. 
as it moves and, and moves around. And it's, it's a little bit complicated because you, you may have to bet multiple teams or you're betting on Sixers specific games down the road with the futures in hand. And that's a, a little weird, but there are scenarios where you can hedge bets or hedge out of bets with futures. And you think of them as like a long-term contract, uh, like, like an options trade in, in stocks and bonds. But the difference is your cost to trade of this options is super high. So you have to be super right, which is very, very hard to do over time. Um, so in, in most scenarios, our recommendation is to, to avoid futures bet futures betting, but you can line shop your way to a point where it's somewhat efficient. Um, so that that's interesting as interesting. You bring that up. Um, cause I actually, I, I looked at, I looked at that for futures betting. So, you know, that 15.4, percent big that I, that I quoted for the Eastern conference. That was at bet rivers. If you add fan duels lines to that, the VIG drops to 8%, it drops in half. And, Definitely. and the, and, and the way that works is, um, Brooklyn nets at one Oh five at fan duel one ten. So already you're just increasing the amount of payout that you get for one team. So you take, what you do is you, you cherry pick the best teams from each sports book. Um, and that's how you get a lower big. So whenever you're going to make, I mean, this is just for every, every bet out there, but whenever you go to make a bet, you should, you should line chop and get the best line available. And, and uh, before we move on, um, as, as just like holistically for this podcast, we don't want to get into too much betting education on one podcast specifically, but these are the types of things that we're going to work through on each podcast to try to provide some value. But one golden rule of sports betting before the next podcast drops, uh, you know, just in case you're betting a lot, line shopping is the single best thing that you could do as a recreational sports gambler to make up your VIG. It is the easiest thing that you can do in the sense of it will add positive expected value to your bets. If you line shop and you are capable of doing it uh, in most States. So my point is if you can line shop and you're only betting at one sports book, you're doing yourself a massive disservice to trying to make money. And again, if your goal isn't to make money, a lot of stuff that we're going to say to you is not going to be super useful, but if you are betting to make money, which I hope most of you are line shopping is the single most important thing that you can add to your gambling. If you're not doing it already, it, um, takes, no, it takes no skill. It takes no skill and it'll you, add you, expected value you can, to your bet. You, you can be Dan and, and maybe make money. <laughs> That's exactly right. So let me so, ask you guys, can I ask you guys a quick question? Yeah, absolutely. Just a quick question to ask. Do you guys, I know we've talked about how you guys have not been the biggest fans of parlays. You know what I'm saying? You guys have not been the biggest fans of parlays, but in terms of like futures, do you think people should play with futures? Because me personally, like I stay away from futures because of the fact that they're, they are too reactionary. And I, I think there uh, so much has to go right throughout the year to, to, to get, like I look at a future like if I were to look at a futures bet, I don't know if, if any of the some of our listeners have had the opportunity to check out some of the blog posts, but I wrote that blog post on the Phoenix Mercury. And I said, you know, at least take them to make it to the finals or at least to win the series that were in, in the semifinals. But that was because it took a, the, the back stretch of the season. They won 11 games straight. They were riding high, a lot of momentum. But if I'm looking at the start of the season to take a future, I think it's like, you know, I think you said it best, Matt, the, the amount of courage you have to have to do that is, is real because, you know, um, in, in 2018, when LeBron became a Laker, they were expected, I think to be like a top one, two, two seed in the West. 
and they lost LeBron and finished ninth, eighth or ninth, didn't even make the playoffs. So it's like mm-hmm. those things are so no. – I, I don't know if I would ever advise somebody to just take a future, unless, it, unless it's the 2017 Warriors with Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, <laughs> and Steph Curry – I don't know if I'm ever willing to tell you to take a future. So, so I'll, I'll add, I'll add, you know, um, I'll add something there. So I also wouldn't recommend my grandma to put all her money in Bitcoin, but it makes, it makes sense to put a little bit of your portfolio in a lot right. of different things. So uh, the way I approach sports gambling is similar to how someone would approach uh, stock, stock and bond trading. Um, I know Dan does this as well, but, Hey, if, if most of your betting is on, you know, solid fundamental reasons on uh, binary outcomes of, of two of two teams winning or, or one team winning a game um, and, 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 and one you know, match against another team, that's fine. But maybe maybe throw if, if your portfolio is thousand dollars, maybe throw two dollars or, you know, you could do one to five percent of your portfolio, say, on futures betting. Like it, there's no reason you couldn't do that. And like we were saying earlier. Sure, there's a lot of courage involved in that um, if you're putting half your money in it, but it takes no courage to put one to 5% of your portfolio in really anything. Um, mathematically, it's again, it's tougher to execute on these futures trades, but like we were talking about with esports, um, the more uncertain that the market is for sports books, the higher you know, pay, the payout can be. Obviously, you know, go back to the, uh, the saying of you know, higher risk, higher return. It is true in this regard, at least yeah. you can do your homework and you can have uh, you can have an opinion on who's going to win the NBA title. And if you do your homework early enough on the payout could be, what is it? Uh, plus 50,000 for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Not saying you should bet on them to win the NBA title. But uh, it, hey, if, if you think that it's plus 30,000 where, uh, you know, then, then it would make sense to buy it now. And, and before before we move on, I just want to say. When Matt specifically, uh, and myself probably too, when we're giving opinions, we're giving it from the perspective of, in a lot of ways, he, he's talking about a portfolio. It's like you're treating this as as a fund, which is what we were doing. So one of the problems we ran into just quickly is constraint. So we needed to bet on as many things as possible with, in our view, a positive expected value because the amount that we could bet per game as sharp sports bettors was limited. So you have to spread your money across if that makes sense to be able to make a return. Cause if let's say you have a million dollar portfolio and you can only get a thousand dollars on because you're only good at two different types of bets and you're limited, then you're not going to be able to bet enough to make money. So the reason why Matt, myself, we did bet futures is because we were desperate to find things that we could bet on that we felt we had even a slight positive expected value. Um, so it entered the, the realm of our stratosphere to bet. But like he said, it took a lot of extra work because you're making up for a lot higher cost of trade, which means the market needs to be a lot more inefficient and you need to be a lot more right. So the process is a little bit more, um, you have to get a little bit more in the weeds to have a positive expected value per bet. And when I say positive expected value per bet, essentially what I'm trying to say is when you place a bet, should you expect your return to be positive? It, it's pretty simple. We'll get into things like closing line values this po- as this podcast goes on. But for now, we'll get into parlays in, a, in probably next podcast, like J-Rob mentioned. But for now, you know, the way to leave the topic on, on futures is it's more inefficient, it's more reactionary, but the cost of trade is much higher. So you have a much higher likelihood of having a negative expected value per trade over 
what would be considered a traditional bet to most people, which is spread money line totals on per game, specifically, usually binary outcomes. Um, so we have spent a lot of time on topics. Um, so to quickly go through, and also I didn't watch the game because we're, we're recording this podcast during the, the Lakers game. I did want to touch briefly on just a, a quick prediction for people out there in terms of if you're betting on the Lakers early season versus late season. Um, I believe the lineup they rolled out tonight was Russell Westbrook, Kent Bazemore, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and DeAndre Jordan. I just want to say that in, in, in my personal opinion, using the LeBron index, playing around with some other analytics and trying to mix them together in a sense of what this team could look like, because they theoretically can run like 12, 13 deep. They just picked up Avery Bradley. I don't even know how you mix the roster, but whatever. The optimal lineup for the Lakers from an analytics standpoint is Anthony Davis has to play center. I think a lot of people push for that in the playoffs and closing lineups. He usually does, but here is the optimal lineup from a spacing perspective, a LeBron perspective, both offensive and defensive. It's Russell Westbrook, sorry, Russell Westbrook, Kent Bazemore, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and Malik Monk. And I think this is important to reiterate when you guys are looking at basketball, not even just from a betting perspective, but just trying to learn the game a little more from an analytic perspective, which is where obviously a lot of these general managers are moving you either need to be able to shoot threes or you need to be able to get the ball to people that can shoot threes. And that, if you just think of the math of basketball, think about how much more a three is worth than a two over time. Your percentages for a three, obviously you need to shoot a lower percentage and could still score more points because three is more than two, very simply. So my point being, you need to, everyone knows this. How did Giannis just win a title? You surround him with shooters. When has LeBron James done the best? You surround it with shooters. Why does this lineup not make sense to people that they rolled out tonight? Nobody can shoot. You know, that's a big problem when you have Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, DeAndre Jordan, Kent Bazemore. You're not rolling out any of the people like Wayne Ellington, I know was hurt. Um, Kendrick Nunn didn't play as well, hurt. Um, and Malik Monk, I'm not actually sure how it played out. But my guess is this is what the closing lineup will look like. And I know a lot of people are probably going to, I know this is what the one that the fans want. So I, I did some work on it. Russell Westbrook, Carmelo, Anthony, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, THT. It's not going to happen. That's a bad lineup. Um, the, the spacing is, is pretty horrible. You're not maximizing anyone on the roster's talents. Russell Westbrook would be useless there. LeBron James would still be really good at basketball because he's good at every part of basketball, but he'd be less good. You need to surround LeBron and Russ with shooters. Anthony Davis can kind of shoot for a big man. He could really shoot, but when he plays power forward, everyone else needs to shoot. Russell Westbrook cannot shoot. He's the worst high volume three-pointer, three-point shooter to ever live. So everyone else on the court needs to be a three-point shooter. So before you know, we move on, you know, happy to get everyone's opinions on it. But again, surround him with shooters, put in Malik Monk, add in Wayne Ellington often, Kendrick Nunn often, and Kent Baseboard makes a lot of sense from, he's actually better than spacing than people expect. And he's a, a, a very good analytical defender. Um, and it hides Malik Monk in a way who's probably, I know Wayne Ellington's probably the best three-point shooter on the team, but Malik Monk is, I believe he shot over 40% last year. He's someone that should be on the court. He's young. He's analytically better than Wayne Ellington. Um, they do kind of the same things. He just does it better and he's younger. So I wanted to touch on that. We'll see how it plays out. But if you're betting on the Lakers early season versus late, when you have a bunch of veteran players, LeBron James obviously loves veteran players. 
they are probably going to swing towards their veterans early that have a little bit of clout. DeAndre Jordan should not be a starting basketball player at this point in his career. Eventually, especially at the closing lineup, and especially in the playoffs, Anthony Davis is going to have to play center. So when you're framing your bets, just, just remember that there's going to be a buy low opportunity, in my opinion, on the Lakers. I actually don't know if they won tonight, but I believe at some point you'll see a switch to what is a more efficient lineup. Um, so just my two cents on that, while it's still early season, I know this pod is going to drop after the game and there will probably be some, again, I didn't watch it. There'll be some differences probably or, or some things that played out, but um, just for the, the, the listeners out there placing some early season bets on the Lakers. But just, before, you know, just to get some quick out, I know we're going to switch topics soon. One, the Lakers are currently down by nine points um, with 48 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Um, so they're probably going to lose tonight. They're probably, probably going to pro- lose. Probability yeah. wise, they're probably losing tonight. Um, but I will say this about the Lakers, and I honestly think in terms of like his spacing percentage for Westbrook, this may be a hot take, maybe not. I actually think Westbrook's uh, plus minus or, you know, whatever the, ne- the, 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 the metric is to measure his spacing will actually go up this year because I think most, if you look at majority of Westbrook's career, he's led the NBA in usage. He's either been one or two in usage mm-hmm. for the past, I think five seasons. Usually it's usually literally a race him between him and Harden. Yeah, yeah. Every year to see whose usage is the highest. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you did say it earlier, Dan is like, the best shots in, you know, especially like on Daryl Morey's metric is corner threes and, and layups, the easiest layups you can get. I think this season, uh, obviously, I think for the Lakers to be successful, I know that Westbrook is the point guard, but LeBron James has to be the primary decision maker because not mm-hmm. only has Westbrook been had the highest usage, he's led the league in turnovers often as well. He's, he's addicted to it, yeah. So... I will say this. I do think in this new system, and I, and I will say this, I, the Lakers will have to figure out their lineup. They pretty much have an entirely new roster. So mm-hmm. they'll figure that out. And I do think it's probably more opportunities to buy low right now because I think whatever they're, wherever they're at, I think they can probably overachieve throughout the year. But I do think this is going to be a time where Westbrook is going to have the ball less. And I think Frank Vogel, and I watched a bit of the game before we got on the pod, He's going to have him cutting a lot of backdoor, a lot of stuff where, you know, naturally Westbrook's skill set, he's a slasher. Mm-hmm. So I do think they'll have a lot of situations where Westbrook won't be getting a lot of open threes and teams are not going to defend him out of the three. If teams are going to be willing to lose to Westbrook shooting threes. If that's how we'll lose. We'll lose that way. But I think the space will be better because they'll be doing a lot of stuff with him cutting to the basket. And he won't just be standing in the corner because if he stands in the corner, he's really a liability because nobody's going to guard him in the corner. They'll let him take the three. So if you get creative with the offense, I can see this year, you know, you have to keep Westbrook moving within the offense, cutting in the basket. And with his skill set, I think he's optimal for the job. So, you know, I'm going to take, I think it could change. I I actually think that from an analyst perspective, Russell Westbrook gets a worse rap than he deserves solely because Mm -hmm. I am a prime believer. And, and again, I wouldn't want to build a team around Russell Westbrook, but just what the consensus has become on him is, is a bit unfair in the sense that he is exceptionally good at playmaking. I mean, he grades out in the top 99% um, on the LeBron metric, top 99% and getting to the rim. And that's so important in basketball. If you surround him with shooters, right? I mean, that's the key. And that's what the Lakers are, are unfortunately going to have to suck up is you added a lot of people that can't shoot threes. 
and you need to space the floor when you have two of the best drivers of the basketball in, in LeBron and, and Russ, and one of the greatest passers of all time, I would argue maybe the greatest passer of all time, LeBron James, and a good, a very good passer in Russell Westbrook, right. which he doesn't get credit for because of the turnovers, but he has led the league in assists, and assists uh, you know, a couple of times at least. And so usage. He so, has the ball all the time. It, exactly. So I think, you know, when, when you're looking at the Lakers, just to wrap that one up quick, it, it, it could be a buy low opportunity. I think you will see them struggle for a few more games as they figure out this lineup, but they, they do have the shooting available to be able to clean it up. So um, when the market moves on them, which it takes longer for someone like the Lakers because of the amount of love and, and attention the Lakers get, it probably will take longer. And any LeBron James team is going to enter most games as the favorite, but there will be some, some, regression to the mean once they they fix it fix their lineup a little bit so to to change topics a little bit um what what we would like to do next is we would like to go through instead of basketball we're going to move on to what happened this past sunday in the nfl and the lens we want to do this through for for our for our listeners is we're going to break down plays that had a pretty large impact on the game meaning there was a chance for conventional wisdom to play through, which is maybe it's a fourth and two and you punt fourth and two, you kick a field goal. But in the new age, it makes a lot more sense for people to go for things on fourth down and you're starting to see and, and two point conversions and you're starting to see teams adapt to something like that. Um, so we're going to be using a little bit of next gen, next gen stats, analytics, things of that nature. We're going to run through scenarios. I'm going to kick it to J Rob with his experience as a football player he watched the games as well. He'll be able to give you like what he thinks maybe the players were thinking and maybe conventional wisdom should be right. Because one thing we do know is this, Bill Belichick does like analytics, but I will say he, with Mac Jones, calls a little bit less of an analytically correct game. Why? Because he is adding subjectivity to it. And I, I don't think any of us would argue here that we know more about football than Bill. So there is still room for, for conventional wisdom, but we just want to look at frame through the numbers and then, and then we could kind of give our opinions um, I'm going to start off with, um, the chargers and the Ravens. So the chargers, uh, ended up losing pretty badly. I think it was 34 to six. Um, the line coming in was Ravens minus two and a half. Uh, so here's the scenario. If you guys need me to repeat it. So the chargers opted to go for it on their own side of the field. It was the second quarter, nine minutes and 13 seconds left. They were down 14 to zero. Fourth and three from their own 39. It was an incomplete pass. So we're using next-gen stats here. Um, it was actually the right call from, from their own 39, but because they were down 14-0, it added 1.2% in win probability going for it. If they converted, they would have had a win probability of 12.1% from 9.7. If they punted, that 9.7 would have went to 8.2% and failed to convert, which is what happened, 6.6% win probability moving forward. Um, so... I'm framing it through the, 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 the decision was actually the right one. However, the play call was pretty bad. They ran a hitch route to, I believe it was Mike Williams. They have that about a, roughly a 44% chance of being completed on general fourth and three, given the parameters, about a 52% chance of converting on a normal regular pass play. So my question really is to you, J-Rob, knowing kind of the flow of the game, knowing who you have, Justin Herbert, a, a hobbled Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Jared Cook, Austin Eckler, the flow of the game down 14-0. And, and two teams that I, I believe were both four and one at the time. 
two very good teams. I think ones that people will consider to be Super Bowl contenders. What would you have done? You know the numbers now. You know it was technically the right choice from an analytics perspective. My question basically is what would you have done? Um, to be honest, I think it's the right call too. Um, the, the reason why I think it's the right call not is, is really not even analytical. It's it's really just for the momentum of your football team. Because I that, that game, unfortunately, like that game was a wash for the Ravens. And I think nobody expected that. I think people expected that game to go down to the final, the final drive, fourth quarter, big implications. It was that was definitely one of those games where you, you cut where you uh you're trying to set yourself apart from the rest of the pack in the AFC to establish yourself as like we're one of these teams that is to be feared this year. I like the call. I mean, I like I don't like the play call. I think I think I might run like a screen because fourth and three at your own 38 is it's clear passing down. It's a clear passing down because you're not gonna run it because if you run it and you don't get it, you don't feel like most teams are going to want to put the ball in their quarterback's hands to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, even John Harbaugh, I don't know what the percentages are, but they usually go go for it a lot on four for three with the Ravens because you have the ultimate the ultimate weapon in the NFL in Lamar Jackson. So you have the luxury of knowing not only what can this man throw it, but he can also run it to get me three yards. I like the play call. It's the right call by Staley. I just don't know. I mean, I like the decision, not the play call. I like the decision because you're down 14-0. You honestly know that this Ravens offense is humming right now. And honestly, you don't want to give the ball back to Lamar Jackson because one thing we do know about the Ravens is, especially when they, they got Lamar Jackson, is their time of possession is different than a lot of teams because they run the ball a lot. They are on a very run-centric offense. So their time of possession compared to most teams is they're not playing keep away. That's just what their offense is. You know, they're going to throw, pass, run, run, QB run, outside zone, inside zone. They're going to beat you in a lot of different ways. So their drives are methodical. And you go down 14-0 and you punt the ball away. You give Lamar another long drive. They score. You possibly don't have that much time. You're going into halftime. So then you, you're climbing out of a 21-0 hole. I, I like the call. And I'm going to be honest, from a football player's perspective, straight up, anything that's fourth and fourth and three and shorter, most football players want to go for it, mm-hmm. even if it's in their own, even if it's in their own territory, because most offenses don't even want to get off the field to begin with. And that's just like the pride of the players. So I know I'm, I'm pretty sure they want the, the players wanted to go for it on fourth and three, too, because you're trying to stop the bleeding. You know, you get that fourth down, you go down and score, you go down 14-7, it doesn't, the, the weight of that drive doesn't feel so unsurmountable. And I think that play was actually pivotal because I think once they didn't get that, I think the Ravens score and, and it almost becomes like this, this is insurmountable for us to get through. So. I, 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 so I just want to add one thing that I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around, but the point of a, of a game, this sounds so obvious, but. The point of the game is to win the game, not to try to lose right. by the least amount. Right. So, and that's a hard thing with analytics, which is you're down 14 0. Not if you're a spread better. Not, not, <laughs> that's true. Right. That's but very true. The point of analytics is to say, okay, I'm down 14 0. I know if I don't get this and, and I turn it over on the 39 yard line, on my own 39, down 14 0 on the road against a really good team, I'm probably going to lose. But if I punt it, 
I'm probably going to lose. But if I convert, I actually might have a chance of winning. Right. So you have to frame these decisions. And this is the hardest thing that has had to change from conventional wisdom of how to, how to manage a football game is, um, you play to win rather than to not lose by the least amount. I and I will say John Harbaugh does he plays to win. tend to, to make the right decision. So since 2018, um, do coaches go for it when they should? This is a little bit outdated. Didn't get the most updated numbers, but he tends to make the optimal decision about 70 to 72% of the time, which is the second highest of, of active coaches. Um, so he does. And he is analytically pretty sound and he usually knows the correct thing to do from that perspective. But again, it's not a hundred percent. Should it be a hundred percent? The answer is probably not because there is still subjectivity for a coach to, to make calls that they want. Matt might argue differently, but the point is that he, he he's aware. Um, and, and from the perspective of, of what we're talking about with um, the chargers, you can listen to a Brandon Stanley, uh, their, their head coach, a, a soundbite of him talking about, why running makes sense. And you'll realize that he is pretty analytically sound too. And they do have one of the, one of the better um, track records to making the right decision. So to quick kick it to you, Matt, I, I know I ran through the scenario with you, you know, the numbers say to go for it. Do you feel like there's ever a scenario where you should go against what the analytical number is saying? In this situation, he's not going to hear any shit from me. It was the right call. Um, <laughs> but but, but, but yeah, to, to, to go to your point, um, I'm sure there are, it, it comes down to me. So, so if, if they convert it, these win percentages are still pretty dire for them, right? They're, they're at around 10%. You're in plus 1000 territory there. Um, if they convert 12%, if they, if they, if they fail, which they did 6%. So, I mean, half of what, what it would have been, but if they punt, you know, that's a pretty sure thing at eight, 8%. So better than the 6%, but you know, you, in that situation, you, you go for it. And, yeah. and, the, and, and, and not just because of that 12% number, but because of, I'm a, I, I just did the quick weighted probability of, do they succeed? What your expected win is after they succeed, you know, do they fail? What's your expected win after they fail? And it is slightly in the positive for that situation. Um, however, I'm sure things, Dan, to answer your question, things can get team specific. Right. A lot of the data that we have is, you know, from an NFL standpoint, from, you know, uh, 2019, 2020, this is how this works for this season. But but things are different, obviously, on a team to team basis. How effective is this quarterback um, in, in this situation at, you know, a play action pass at, at going for uh, going for a pass and then identifying an opportunity to to run there? How effective are they? at converting fourth downs relative to other teams at converting fourth down. And, and sometimes the numbers so, can get fuzzy. So, you have to take into account momentum, which J-Rob was, was talking about earlier as well. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I think you answered it, but I'm almost asking even to go a step further, pretend that you're the head coach and we hold for the variables, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, the team specific analytics that we're talking about, you know, their fourth down, you know, you know, your fourth down percentage, you know what your quarterback could do, where he likes to throw, what's analytically correct. I'm saying you have all the data that you think you need mm-hmm. and you have a 1% edge on a decision. Do you ever look at the flow of the game, the momentum of the game, what your players' faces look like and make a decision that is less optimal? 
I'm sure you have to ever do from from, from, you you know what I I know the number I know the answer you want from me Dan and I know the answer is no you look at the numbers regardless of any other variables Mm -hmm. out there in the world Um, but I can't even say that I played football I played football for for 12 years as well um, even Mm -hmm. though I don't watch the sport or really understand the rules still but um no (laughs) but but, yeah you obviously have to take into account um you know the, the little things um how confident your QB is in that conversion, probably being the most important. <laughs> yep. And, and I think before, before we go into the next game, I want to give one other scenario and, and it's just also want to hear you guys thoughts on this. So it was five fifty eight remaining in the game, same game. Now they're down 24 to six, fourth and one from their own 19 Herbert again, incomplete, very similar play. I, I just want to give kind of a, when you guys are watching the game out there, just a little tidbit of information. So first of all, for this scenario, it wasn't actually really fourth and one, which is hard for people to understand, but important for live betting. It was actually about fourth and 1.9, which is weird because it says fourth and one, which will change the odds and live odds move quickly. So you can actually get an edge by knowing uh, actually how long the down and distance is, which is weird, but just something to keep in mind for, for the live betters out there. And if you're listening, you will eventually become a live better, but regardless. So the expected probability of winning according to next gen stats, it was about the same, whether you go for it or kick like Matt was saying, they're dire. It, it actually ended to be pretty much the same. Again, the problem was this, the, the probability of completing that pass because it was a similar like hitch type route was 46%. Prob- probability of converting it had they run about 58%. I'm just going to make a quick argument. It's actually a little bit higher uh, in my opinion. So I, I found some statistics from 1998 through 2016, the percent chance of converting a fourth and one was about 65.7% but 67.9% for run plays. Why? Because the quarterback sneak is one of the most analytically superior plays in all of sports. Um, So the QB sneak is about a 83% conversion for fourth and one over that time period, 1998 to 2016. And this is pretty weird, but surprise factor does matter in football. Fourth and two quarterback sneaks actually converted at 89%. Why? Because they probably didn't think you were going to do it. Um, So my thing is this, if you are at a a, a true fourth and one, we actually saw this with, I didn't watch it in the game, but I know Josh Allen had a chance to win the game last night and we're not going to go through that game, but it's the right play call. A QB sneak is almost always the right play call. If you could do it. And he's six, five, two, you got to He's six, five. And the thing is who's one of the best all time, best Tom Brady quarterbacks. Tom Brady, Tom Brady. And, and you don't consider him, you know, Cam Newton athletic, obviously. Right. So the point is the QB sneak is <laughs> when you have a, fi- a five, five 40 to go one yard. doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> doesn't matter well, right. you know, doesn't strength, matter. whatever. Exactly. That's the point. It, it doesn't really matter. And um, there, there's actually a whole nother thing that we could talk about, which is the, the fallacy that larger running backs actually do better in short yard situations, which is not true. Not um, true. I'm waiting for, for coaches to pick up on that, but regardless, uh, anyways, off topic, but the point is there, there, there's something to be said about that decision. Um, and, and surprising from my standpoint that Brandon Staley, who I think is pretty in tune with, with what you should do analytically would opt to do these past plays that again, you know, what's the worst, what's the worst play analytically in football. It's, it's a back shoulder fade in the end zone. Um, but this isn't in the end zone, but it's pretty similar in the sense of, you know, you need a couple yards and, and you're throwing kind of a, a hitch route. doesn't make too much sense. So, um, I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts on that. I could jump to the next game, but if there's anything you guys want to add. I'm, I'm good. I yeah. just think Staley should have just 
I think you call a different play. I think call a different play. Yeah, call a different play. If if you want, I just did. I did one numbers. You said fifty two percent probability in most cases that they convert the pass there to have a positive expected, like uh, you know, increase in points from that play. They would they would need to find a pass play that's fifty seven percent. Just right. a fun little tidbit, whatever yeah, that and, might be. And that's that was on that was on the first scenario. Just just yeah, just so exactly. everyone knows. And and basically what what Matt is also you know saying there is you actually, you know, you have a, a, a loss in, in probability um, based on the weighted value of your chance of converting. Meaning if you go for it, you actually are expected to lose probability because of the fact <laughs> there's, that- There's uh, no winning scenario there's no, there's in no this. Win the difference <laughs> yeah. is you still have a higher percent chance of winning than if you punt. So that's where that positive value came in. And what Matt is saying is for it to be just holistically positive, not on just a relative basis to punting, you need uh, you know a pretty substantial uh, uptick in the in the percentage of, of the chance of that play converting. Um, so actually, before we go to the next scenario, I, I just I, I want to take a quick break to say why we would go through these plays. So uh, I looked at some statistics in the last twenty years: fifty eight percent of NFL games had a margin of victory that was ten or less. Twenty three percent of games had a margin of victory that was three or less. So what we're trying to say by these is you have I mean, it depends obviously, but you have a handful to a dozen plays throughout the game where a coach has the option to either make the analytically correct play or the traditional wisdom, not analytically correct play. And we know what kind of people we're talking about, you know, run the ball 60% of the time, play tough defense, punt all the time. Don't let your quarterback make bad decisions. When you're, when you're coming from a gambling perspective and we talk about a sport that's very, very efficient these decisions could be the difference between whether you win not only just a spread bet, but an over-under. If someone makes a play that analytically adds points to their expected total, over time, you will probably have a higher expected total. So the theory, or not really the theory is, but when you're adding to your betting arsenal is you should be aware of what these coaches will do because there will be points in the game where they will make or break decisions based on these, these, these slow, these, I'm sorry, these very important one-off decisions and you can't count the amount of times that they're going to happen. And just so you guys know, one decision can sway the outcome of expected points. And we could get into the expected points formula, but of over seven, which sounds weird, but if you make the wrong decision at at the very wrong time, you can swing the expected value of points that you should score relative to your opponent by more than seven. And that is massive for a betting standpoint. So just to give you like the outliers, the most analytically advanced team as voted on by general managers, and it shows up in the data of since 2018, is the Cleveland Browns. Believe it or not, they have the largest, or maybe not the largest, but the most advanced analytica staff as voted on by other analytic staffs. And Kevin Stefanski tends to make the most analytically correct decisions. Vic Vangio of the Denver Broncos is the worst analytical coach in the league. And I would say that makes a lot of sense. He likes <laughs> to run the ball. He likes to play defense. He's an old school guy. Point being is these things are massively important to the outcomes of games. And it's something that if you hold for is, is, is an edge to your sports gambling. I can understand that. Only thing about the Browns though, I will say they may be great analytically, but they only go, but so far, you know what I'm saying? They only Maybe. go, but so far. 
maybe they go so far in the sense of winning a game, but mm-hmm. in the difference of a spread right. or an over under, mm-hmm. if you're making the correct decisions to either add points or, you know, win by your spread, right. that could be the difference because you always have to frame, like I said before, the most valuable thing that you could ever know in, in sports betting is, you know, what the market is accounting for. And if you find that these little tidbits of whether coaches make the right decisions or not, that could be the difference between a spread should be minus four to minus seven. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting it at minus four, but these are, this is an analytically inclined team and it should be minus mm-hmm. seven, which that's, that probably won't happen. That's pretty drastic, but to, to make it extreme, that could be the difference in whether you have an edge or not. And it's important mm-hmm. to go through these game scenarios because you'll pick up on situations. What should this coach do? And we have a bit of a log of, of what teams are good at or not. You could start to create one as you're watching, which is all right. They're never doing the right thing. And as we go through these scenarios, you'll realize what the right and wrong thing to do is. Um, So I thought that was important. Yeah, and the the best way to take advantage of it from a betting scenario is is live betting. It's not Mm -hmm. pregame. It's as these these events occur, um, more or less given a prediction, hey, this coach has a history of of punting on fourth down, which is the wrong choice. Market Market hasn't moved. Um, you know, I'm going to take the other team or, you know, it's as simple as that. If, if you have a stance on more or less what you think the coach is going to do and if it's the wrong decision. Right. Absolutely. So I'm going to run through a couple more scenarios. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up the first podcast. So um, the game that I think a lot of people watched and were very surprised at one of the scenarios was the Cowboys and the Patriots. So I'll go with the first one that, that caught a little bit of um a flack on Twitter, which was um, 12 of four remaining. Uh, I believe this was the first quarter Cowboys. It was tied zero, zero fourth and one from their own 34 yard line. Zeke stuff for no gain. Patriots took over next gen stats actually had that as a plus 2.6 win probability for going for it that early in the game. From my opinion, I think it was the right choice um, in the sense of it's early in the game to be able to make up for, for what you are doing. And the, you know, if you just do the math, pretty much any, any variables that you guys add in, it should add expected win probability to go for it on fourth and one. Um, but that's a, that's a early point in the game to lose momentum. So J Rob question to you is that early in the game, does it make sense to go from it that deep in, 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 in your own territory? Right decision, wrong coach. So this, so this is the thing, like, and, and Matt, you said you played football for 12 years. The thing about in, in football, if you know that you are a better football team, like if you know flat out we're better than you, you're more likely to go for it on a certain fourth down because you know I can get two yards when I can get a yard on you. You got Dak Prescott with CeeDee Lamb, Amari Cooper. You got Tony Pollard, who is going to be one of my fantasy risers because not because of what he is as – a every down back, but what he does on the receiving end. I, I think, you know, we look at a guy like Austin Eckler for what he can do out the catch out the backfield. I actually played against Tony Pollard, like in real life. And yeah. he's always been, he's always been electric because he can do a bunch of different things. He's better than Zeke. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't say that he's better than uh, Zeke as a pure he, running back. He's, but he's better than Zeke. Yeah. He is. I'm not, that's not what I was trying to say. I'm just saying, on that football. down, either on fourth and one, I'm going to be honest, I got two options here. I'm putting in Tony Pollard going out the gun, and we're going to run like a screen, QB, something short to get him the ball, maybe a, a Texas route. Uh, you got CeeDee Lamb and Amari Cooper, a slant. I'm, I'm, I'm running something different. 
But I, I definitely think like the halfback pass out of the backfield is usually the best the best uh, play. Because on fourth and one, most defenses are expecting like short run. So you, you can really out leverage them. You can out leverage them with a guy like uh, Tony Pollard because you get a matched up on the right uh, linebacker. I'm, I'm taking Tony Pollard versus pretty much any linebacker in football right now in terms of his pure athleticism. Maybe not Michael Parsons. He might be the only other guy because that kid is a freak. But it's the right call. It's the right decision. It is just I'm I'm not also I'm a little biased. I'm, I don't think Mike McCarthy is that great of a coach. I still mm-hmm. don't know how so, he got that job with the Cowboys. But, um, well, you said it best. You said it best, Dan. Before, like the QB sneak is one of the most efficient plays that there is in football. That QB sneak, you you running the QB sneak was a more it was a better decision. Than you decided to drop to for Dak to get the ball, go back and hand it off, give the defense time to react. You could have did so much more. Right decision, just wrong coach, wrong wrong play caller. So I I think then we should just jump to the scenario that people talked about, the big one. Twenty four seconds remaining in the game. Cowboys down 29-26. They're facing a fourth and one. Patriots thirty one yard line. Zerline makes a 49-yard field goal. There was some horrible clock management. We'll ignore that. But going for it would have added about 16%, according to next-gen stats, in win probability. Converting that fourth down was a a bit above 70% chance, while the chance of making the field goal was just 62% chance. Cowboys had a roughly 58% chance of winning an OT based off of odds. We could argue that. uh, I I don't know exactly what next-gen stats uses for that, but probably makes sense. Um, The point is this you were kicking a field goal that had a less percent chance of converting than just going for it on fourth and one. And and you get get yourself an opportunity to number one, maybe score a touchdown and end the game right there. Or number two, get, get, get a closer field goal. I I, want to bring a stat before I I bring this to Matt. This is pretty wild. And this is a shout out to a computer cowboy on Twitter. The Cowboys are good analytically. They're actually in the upper tier of making the correct decisions on fourth down, like I mentioned with Harbaugh and Stefanski, but they're in the bottom half of expected win probabilities lost on fourth down decisions. Why? Because the ones they're wrong about are so drastically horribly wrong that it sways the numbers to the point where they become analytically bad, even though over time they're actually making the correct decisions most of the time, which is... I think I didn't look through it enough, but I think the only team that is suffering from that type of, you know, switch of the spectrum. So before I kick it to you, Matt, um, that's a wild statistic. And I, I think it uh, leads credence to what you're saying, J-Rob, which is wrong coach. Uh, Callan Moore should uh, be elevated. I think they should pull a LeBron James with David Blatt, kick him out, bring Ty Lu in, kick McCarthy out. I know they're, they're winning just like that LeBron team was bringing Callan Moore gives you a better chance of winning. Tyler won the championship. Anyways, go ahead, Matt. Um, you said 16% win percentage increase by deciding before the snap even happens, just the decision to go for it. To go for it. the decision to kick a field goal. Mm-hmm. The, his decision to kick there makes me physically ill. That's, yeah. ter- that's <laughs> terrible. You can literally, you can literally just base, you could, you could hedge out of that bet before the outcome even happens, just, just by, by, by knowing that occurs. The math, the math behind this is 
16%, it goes what from, from around 30%, 35% to around 50% if they decide to, um, yeah, to actually go for it. I think it was what is what I'm, uh, the numbers I just eh, plugged in. It's probably about, yeah, your, your proxies are probably about right. And if, and then if you convert, right, you were saying it's probably around a little mm-hmm. above 70% chance. You, you could, you, you could, head, you could buy that bet, hedge it out, uh, before the, the, the kick even happens, if the market figures out that they're going for it and make money on that, that's how that's how terrible of a decision it is. <laughs> and, be, ahead, oh no, go ahead, Jerry. No, you no, got it. All I was gonna say is, I do. I, I know, like I, I know, the Cowboys are gonna be statistic and analytical darlings this year because of. I mean, they have a good defense. They really have a pretty good defense. I mean, let's be honest, guys. The Cowboys have the defensive rookie of the year and a defensive player of the year on the same team. They do. Like, they need to start having a prop, a yes or no prop. Does Trevon Diggs have an interception in this game? Yes or no? You know what I'm saying? Because what they're doing defensively, I mean, I got to give it up. I, I'm a Cowboys hater. Because without I DeMarcus Lawrence. Yeah, also. without yeah. DeMarcus Lawrence. And I'm a Cowboys hater just because the fan base gets on my absolute nerves. <laughs> However, you got to call it spade a spade. Like, they are they are a good team. But I, the, the downfall of – the Dallas Cowboys will not be the players. Will not be Dak and Zeke and the receiver core of that defense. It's going to be the decision makers because here's one thing I know about sports, especially football. I know in a lot of sports, having the best talent matters so much. But I don't think compared to basketball, because I think in basketball, the best players win. Mm-hmm. I think in in baseball, the, the, the best team that is bought wins. But in football, I think the best teams that win are the ones that are the best coached in every game. Who are the decision makers making the calls? And that that fourth and one, I remember watching that, and that completely lost me. I'm gonna be I, just because everybody and their mother knows that a, a, a 50 yard field goal or trying to get one yard that doesn't seem like a hard decision to make to me. Because if you miss, it's game over mm-hmm. anyway. Yep. Like if you miss, it's game over no matter what. You don't even give yourself a chance if you if you miss it and you put it in your kicker's hand. So like, I don't know how this, the decision between putting in your franchise $174 million quarterback's hands compared to your $5 million a year kicker, who's this, who like, I don't, I don't get that. Especially with the amount of time. Like you had enough time that if you get this thing, you might be able to run one more play and then have to take, then you can kick it if you don't get one more play. But you had enough time to throw there. Like you can go from your probability being, um, it was in like the low 50s to, it almost goes up to 70%. You go for it. You go for it. You gain like five or six yards. If, if they go yards, for it, yeah. If they go for to make it, it's like 70% right. win probability at that point. And I feel like, and like you said, it's, it, that call makes you sick to your stomach because it's, it's, it's like, come on, that's, that's too obvious. You know? <laughs> like that call's too obvious to me. You know it's, it's, like, it's so bad. I'm confident he will he'll never change. And I'm willing to take bets against the Cowboys in dire situations like that going forward. <laughs> and I feel, for, and I honestly feel for the betters because I know on FanDuel, they have like those next drive, um, those next drive, uh, bets you can place. So you see fourth and one. I know there was a good amount of betters on four, on that fourth and one took. They're going to go for it or there's going to be a first down and they kick that field goal. 
Oh, well, what, what, what about the, what about the guys that bet on the field goal? Good for them. Right. No, the guys <laughs> bet on the field goal. Great job. <laughs> I, I I don't think I don't think the field goal was the obvious choice. I, I oh, just, wasn't it? Wasn't like it, it just wasn't the obvious choice. But then again, like I said before, this is Mike McCarthy, y'all. Like this is who he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, was, I, I I will say I think it's a good way to bring it full circle, which is these decisions absolutely can can lead to you making a different decision when you're betting. Like Jay Rob was saying, yes, in football, it's it's quarterback, it's coach, it's a GM drafting the right people on cheap contracts to fill out the roster. Right. In basketball, it's add as much talent as humanly possible and figure it out later. That's just the way you win in, right. in those two sports. It's proven pretty true, at least in the in the modern era. But guys, we have gone pretty long. Um, that's going to be it for our podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We'll be back providing very similar content in the sense of looking through things through an analytical lens, looking through it through subjectivity and experience. And we'll always be providing betting tips along the way. You can follow us at our socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, at scrimmage underscore co. And we'll be back next week. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys.